following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4 is where we're going to be this morning. <clears throat> In a blog post entitled, The World is Catechizing Us Whether We Like It or Not, Kevin DeYoung wrote, It is worth remembering David Wells' famous definition. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Here's the reality facing every Christian in the West. The money, the power, and prestige of the mainstream media big-time sports, big business, big tech, and almost all the institutions of education and entertainment are invested in making sin look normal. Make no mistake, no matter how good your church, no matter how strong your family, no matter how gospel-centered your Christian school or homeschool, if your children and grandchildren are even remotely engaged with contemporary culture, and they are, They're being taught by a thousand memes and messages every week. Now just think about that for a moment. The world is teaching us all the time. It's teaching our kids. It's instructing us all the time. It's teaching teaching us about life and comfort and happiness and joy and satisfaction and what really matters. And the world is telling us how we should see the world all the time. And as Christians, we have to weigh all the time if what we're being taught is true or right in the eyes of God. How do the memes, the sitcoms, the rhythms of our culture line up with God's plan and role in our life? How do cultural ideas fit within the biblical framework? We're all being taught. Like we said last week, we six days out of the week, we are breathing the air of the world all around us. And the last thing we need when we walk into the doors of the church is to once again have the worldly ideals thrown back up in our face again. And we as Christians have to ask, as these things are bombarding us all around, what is true and what is accurate, what is correct in the eyes of God? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And if you're new with us, you should have got an outline when you walked in the door, and the outline has a big idea at the top of it. And here's the big idea that I hope we will see this morning. God has given us the truth of the gospel that shapes our beliefs and our behavior. It is the truth, once for all, delivered to the saints. God has given us the truth of the gospel That shapes our beliefs and our behavior. It is the truth once for all delivered to the saints. See, Timothy had a daunting task. This book that we're studying was written by the Apostle Paul to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, who was pastoring a church in Ephesus. Not only did the temple of Diana or Artemis dominate city life, but in his little church, some false teachers had led many Christians down a road to a false gospel. Rather than heeding the warnings of the Apostle Paul, some of the Ephesian church elders had become wolves 
preying on God's sheep with a false doctrine and false teaching. That's where we are in the book. So let's stand together and we're going to read 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, and then we'll pray. And we stand to read God's word because it is inspired. It's true. It's, it's God breathed. This is the reading of God's word. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of our hearts to the wonder of Christ. And I pray this morning that we would see the beauty of the gospel as displayed in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That we would marvel at how you have saved us and redeemed us and restored us and that you would protect us from false doctrine so that we can be your people to represent you in this world for your glory, the good of our friends, and the advancement of your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. Now, again, here's what I hope we will see this morning. God has given us the truth of the gospel that shapes our beliefs and our behavior. It is the truth once for all delivered to the saints. Now let's start with a point, number one in your outline, which is the simplicity of the gospel, because we cannot jump into chapter four without connecting it and remembering what Paul talked about at the end of chapter three. In chapter three, verses 14 through 16, Paul wrote some remarkable things about the church. The church is the household of God. It's the pillar and buttress of the truth. And he closed that chapter with a confession or a creed found in verse 16 of the gospel. That Jesus came in the flesh, was raised by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and ascended to heaven. In other words, the truth that the church is built upon is the truth of the gospel. The local church is to be built upon this truth and to proclaim this truth. And as we talked about last week, the role of the local church is to be faithful to this gospel. It's to be steadfast in declaring this gospel and faithful in demonstrating this gospel. Now, when you're in between chapter 3 and 4, I want you to, for a moment, just to imagine the Apostle Paul with me after he wrote the creed. Imagine him putting his pen down. Beginning to wipe his eyes and make sure that he's got enough candlelight. Make sure he's got enough ink for his pen. And he begins to then turn his attention to young Pastor Timothy, who is pastoring this small church in Ephesus. And he's thinking of Timothy. And he's wondering about the grief that has been caused to Timothy's heart, that leaders in this church in Ephesus have led some of Timothy's people away from the true gospel. Imagine as Paul is 
thinking about all the impact of the false teachers and their work upon him. Imagine Paul then picking up his pen and beginning to write chapter 4. So in other words, it's with the connection to the gospel, the gospel in plain sight in verse 16 that Paul wrote chapter 4 about people falling away. Paul intentionally follows the creed of the gospel with his concerns about false teaching for a reason. One reason that we can assume is Paul is wanting to connect the gospel to what he's about to talk about. He wants to connect the simplicity of the gospel with the complexity of false teachers. He wants to connect the simplicity of the Christian life with the complexity of what false teachers are asking of their people. See, if you're here last week, you'll remember that we said that God is more interested in our faithfulness than he is in our fruitfulness. And there's a simplicity of the gospel found in chapter 3 that connects us to all this stuff discussed in chapter 4. See, the true gospel is simply the story of God, the God of the universe, the God, the God who outlined the beaches, the God who put all the lands in their places, that God sending his son Jesus to rescue his people and their world from the ravages of our sin. It's a story of a holy God, a sinful people, a perfect champion who came to save his people from their sin. The true gospel The simple gospel is a story of how God created humans who rebelled against him and how God saved them from their sin and misery by the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. In other words, the true gospel is the story of Jesus. And we had noticed something about this story. When you look at the creed found in verse 16, notice that there's no mention of us. There's only a mention of Christ. See, the true gospel is not about our performance to be made right with God, but rather it's about Christ's performance on our behalf to be made right with God. We could say, as John Piper said, Jesus Christ is indeed the gospel. This tells us then if the gospel is about Jesus and it's solely about Jesus, that the Christian life then is a is belief and behavior that is transfixed with and transformed by Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The Christian life is a belief, a trust, a faith, a confidence in this fact. There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves, by ourselves, to save us from ourselves and from the justice of God. Only Christ can do that, and only Christ did do that. See, do you you see the simplicity of the gospel? The Christian life is simply this. Believing and behaving because Jesus lived died, rose again, and ascended. It's not how you vote. And that's critically important in the world that you live in right now. Because when you tell people that you're a Christian, they automatically assume that you are a Republican. Or you voted a certain way in the last election. And you have to pull the scales back and say, wait, wait, what a Christian is, is one 
who believes and behaves because Jesus lived, died, rose again, and ascended. It's not about what style of clothing you choose to wear. It's not whether or not you like paper or plastic. It's not about whether you like red wine or white wine, or whether you went to homeschool, private school, or public school. It's not about whether you make white bread, or you grew up on Wonder Bread, or you eat wheat bread. The simplicity of the gospel is this. Christ lived for us, died for us, rose again victorious, and has ascended to the right hand of God as our king. And Christians believe and we behave because that is true. In other words, the news is Jesus lived perfectly, died in our place, rose again from the dead, and is seated at God's right hand. We have to adjust our lives to that truth. Our belief does not make that true. It's already true. Therefore, we believe that truth because it's news sent from God and we behave because of that news. So I've got to ask as we start this journey, do you believe this simple gospel? (laughs) Do you believe in everything that you can imagine that this gospel is true, that Jesus died lived in your place, died in your place, rose again from the dead and is now seated at God's right hand. Do you believe it? And you may say, yeah, I I do. Or you may say, I don't. And if you don't, we would say to you, then trust Christ. It's eternally important that you do trust in Christ. And if you do believe this gospel, then I would ask another question. Is your behavior being shaped by your ascended Christ seated at the the right hand of God? Are you loving because Christ loved you first? Are you forgiving because God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you? Are you welcoming others as God in Christ has welcomed you into his family? This morning as I get in my car, I have a 30-minute drive to church. It's my journey to church, and I like to either pray or read really good books. And uh, listen to audio, but not read them, but, you know, audio books. <laughs> right, right. People do think I drive crazy, but that's not the reason, right? Uh, <clears throat> right? And as I was driving this morning, the first things out of my mouth was I said, God, thank you that your patience with me is long. And help me to have long patience with others because you have been patient with me. Is your, is your behavior being shaped by the risen Christ? See, this is really important because of what we see in the text. Because that's our next point, is the complexity of false teaching. See, defining false teaching is, it's complex. (laughs) It's hard. But as we're going to see, so is the type of life that false teachers call their followers to live. It's anxiously complex. You can feel false teaching in your bones because of the anxiety that it breeds. Notice what Paul said in verse 1, that in later times some will depart from the faith. It's a, it's, a, it's a statement to young Timothy. Imagine Timothy leading the small church, and he sees, I don't know, four, five, eight people begin to leave the church or more being influenced by false teaching. What does he need to hear from Paul? Hey, brother, no matter how clearly you make the gospel, no matter how faithful you are to God to preach God's word, No matter how good your church may be, 
Can I just warn you and just encourage you? Some are going to fall away. It's a sad but true fact that there will be those that we thought were in the faith that will prove down the road they are not in the faith. And Paul encouraging Timothy with this word. They they will depart. It will happen. And Timothy, you're seeing it right now where you are. But notice why they're departing. Because they will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Devotion reveals it's their choice. Devotion reveals it's in their desire. These people have believed false doctrines so deeply and so sincerely that they are devoted to it. It's like the old saying goes that we can believe a lie so long that it eventually becomes the truth to us. An old pastor friend of mine would say, I had a discussion with an atheist and he was very sincere about his belief, but he was sincerely wrong in his belief. Yet he was devoted to it. People who leave the simplicity of the gospel behind for false teaching bear the responsibility of devoting themselves to false teaching. And you can see the source of false teaching in the text. Deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. In other words, any teaching that takes people away from the simplicity of the gospel has come straight from the pit of hell. You can see why Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. See, the devil's the first one who was the first false teacher who introduced to Adam and Eve this intriguing phrase. Did God really say? The beginning line of all false teachers starts with a questioning of God's authority and God's word. Did God really say, isn't there a better way? There's got to be a better plan, a better idea, a better opinion out there than what God has said. It can't be that simple. Really believe and behave because Jesus has lived, died, rose again, and ascended? Yeah, that's it. That's it's simply, that, there's got to be something else to add to this. See, and that's the lure of false teaching. It's deceitful. Notice it's subtle. It's easy to believe and it fits with our desires. Paul's point is this, that false doctrine comes from hell and is as deceitful as the devil. Now just for a moment, think about that. Think about what we know of the devil and his deceit in biblical history. We know of that the devil deceived one-third of the host of heaven in rebellion against God while they were in the presence of God. We also know that he tempted and deceived Judas Iscariot, don't we? Who was walking on the earth with Jesus physically for three years. Now let that register in your mind when you think, I will never fall prey to false teaching. When you realize how deceitful it is. You can see what Paul would say, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he Fall. The lure of false teaching is subtle. It is deceitful. And the tools of Satan, according to verse 2, are false teachers who are insincere liars and whose consciences are seared. 
Paul is telling Timothy that the former leaders are hard-hearted charlatans. They have sinned so long, they become callous to the truth, and they know exactly what they're doing. They're liars who are disingenuous. They would never do the things they're calling their followers to do, yet they call them to do it anyway. And they're being used by Satan to deceive people. And where it gets really complex is in what these false teachers are teaching. See, notice verse 3, he says, They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. What's intriguing about this is, you're going to find, and I'll write about this tomorrow in my blog post, if you want to get that, be sure you give us your email address. You're going to find that every culture has particular angles that lead, that are tempting toward false doctrine. In the Ephesian cultures, we're going to see, they were leaning into legalism. Our culture leans into lawlessness. And both of them have the same motivation. To be comforted, satisfied, find joy, find, find a higher life. In the Ephesian culture, the temple of Diana, that goddess of fertility, affected so much of what went on in this town and region. We can imagine because of the rampant immorality on display and publicly encouraged, we can believe that monogamous marriage, you know, one man for one woman for one lifetime, that's where they enjoy their sexual union together. We can imagine that was seen as a hindrance to their propagation of their religion. And thus a problem and needed to be forbidden. So in the temple of Diana, the more partners you had, the greater joy you brought to the goddess and the happier you would be with your life and the happier she would be with you. Dietary laws were also necessary. What you ate and drank up at the temple mattered to your party atmosphere and mattered to you being seen as righteous before her. And you'll notice something in the forbidding of marriage and abstaining from certain foods. This was a way that one or a person was approved by the goddess. It was through obedience to certain things the goddess would call you to do that she would be happy with you. And so people were encouraged to abstain from certain foods or engage in certain immoral practices for the purpose of appeasing the goddess. It was in their culture, in their DNA of their culture. It was all throughout the city. Furthermore, you had certain Jews who were leaders in the church in Ephesus, and they propagated a Jesus plus gospel. You can read about this more in the book of, in the book of Galatians. A Jesus plus mentality basically says this. Yes, we should believe in Jesus that he came and he lived and he died in our place. But if we don't obey certain laws and do certain rituals and practices, we won't be right with God. We won't be truly godly and will never arrive spiritually. And what the people in Ephesus did, the Jews did, was they took the same rules of Diana, but the other direction. We need to be celibate. And don't entertain certain foods that are being celebrated at the temple. Because if you do that, you are unrighteous and unholy before God. But notice the motivation is the same. If you do certain things or don't do certain things, you will be right with God and God will make God will be happy with you. See, so what you see in both sides of this concern is a performance mentality to false teaching. False teaching is concerned with how we perform and what we do and what we don't do. Let me tell you why this is so attractive. It's attractive to the human heart, especially to American Christians, because it's measurable. You can measure your progress. 
And as you see your progress doing or not doing certain things, you can gauge your spiritual success. And let's be honest, who doesn't like progress? And we're Americans. That's what we do, right? We, we make progress. We produce things, right? We work hard. That's how we do that. We are successful. Who doesn't like that? Who doesn't like measurables? I mean, we're just coming off the NFL draft, and one word that was used more than any other word was measurables. He's six foot six. He's got a long wingspan, and he's 312 pounds, and he runs a 4740. Measurables. This guy's going to be a success. Who doesn't like that? But the danger of using measurables in our spiritual life is it makes us start looking at our progress. And it takes our eyes off of the one who has caused the progress. See, here's the truth. If, if being right with God and being godly is found in being a polygamist or being celibate, abstaining from certain foods or doing this or not doing that, where is our attention or our worship drawn? It's drawn to us. And it's very tempting. That's why as a preacher, it is so tempting to just put before you, let me give you seven tips on how to overcome this problem in your life. Rather than pointing you over and over and over again to the glorious gospel and the great pastor who will direct you on how you can be successful in your life by following him. We're so prone to measurables in the church because we want to see success and we want to measure our progress because we're naturally turned inward. We are natural navel gazers. We like to look inward. False teaching is attractive because it hits us right in our sweet spot. So this one thing Paul is addressing False teaching emphasizes our performance, what we do or what we don't do. But I want you to notice something else about false teaching that Paul talks about. It denies two things given by God in the Garden of Eden. Do you notice that? Marriage and food. In Genesis chapter 1, in the Garden of Eden, God gave man to woman and woman to man, man to woman to man and man to woman in marriage. And in the garden, a few verses down, God gave us dominion over everything on the earth, and he gave us plants for food. This is all pre-fall, before sin entered the world. Both food and marriage are remnants of the Garden of Eden. I, I hope you marvel at this for a moment. When you go home today, you get in the car with your spouse, you should look at them and say, hey, this is such an odd, what we have right here, is a remnant of the Garden of Eden. It's an artifact. Now, you may feel old like an artifact, but you're not, okay? This is an artifact. God gave us this to point us back to the Garden of Eden. Then when you go eat your food today, you can look at the food and go, this is a, this, this is an artifact. This is a remnant of the Garden of Eden. They're to be received from God as gifts from God. And what false teaching calls us to do, it calls us to deny the gifts that God has given us. Now in our culture it does it radically different. It's trying to get rid of the nuclear family and marriage altogether because we don't need it anymore. You see the false teaching there? Deny yourself of what God has created from the beginning. You might think, why is this a big deal? Well, John Stott says it very clearly. To reject these things is to abandon the faith 
since it insults the creator. Dr. Stott, would you like to tell us how you really feel? See, the challenge here is that we can go, okay, let me, let me go outside. I'm going to go looking around for false teachers who tell me to, you know, forbid marriage and stop eating certain foods. But we're going to miss the broader perspective here, Paul. I'm not sure Paul's point is, watch out for false teachers who forbid monogamous marriage and tell you to abstain from eating certain foods. I think those are examples of false teaching. One thing you'll notice about all religions of the world except for Christianity is the belief that we somehow can make ourselves right with, you name the higher power. Through our performance, our good deeds, our sacrifices, our self-discipline. Years ago, I was reading the, New, the, the Wall Street Journal, and on the front page was a picture of a Muslim man with his forehead gashed. As I read the article, it was about a festival they were doing, and he felt like when he cut his forehead and the blood ran, that his life was now pleasing to Allah. He was appeasing Allah through his blood running. What that man needs to hear is your Your scars have been taken by another one. Blood has been shed for you by another one. And his name is Christ. You you don't have to gash your forehead. See, something is false when it teaches us another form of acceptance before God other than what is found solely in Jesus Christ. It is critical we understand this. Something is false when it teaches us to find our hope our happiness, our satisfaction, our significance in something other than Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And something is false, friends, when it tells us to reject or deny ourselves the gift that God has given us from the beginning of time unless directed by God for a short season of time. False teaching comes in just various complex forms, but it encourages the same thing. Trust in your performance. Find all that you need for this life and the next in something other than Christ. And don't forget where it's coming from. It's coming from the pit of hell. And it doesn't matter who the mouth speaker is. It's coming from the pit of hell using calloused, hard-hearted people intent on selling lies. Let me give you an example of this. This week I was watching a baseball game as I was writing my sermon. I know that seems odd to some of you, but to me it's like, this is fantastic. I can write freely because I can hear, you know, popcorn, get your popcorn, you know, strike one. I can hear, and I just, I love where I get my sermons. And, and I looked up as a commercial came on the screen. And it was a commercial for a cell phone company. And it showed a family, like one of ours probably, mom and dad sitting on the couch, and kids are running crazy all around the background. And there's five or six kids running around. And the mom says, we chose this cell phone plan because, and we even got more kids So we could have a lower price on our cell phone bill. So we created a family for our cell phone. And it's chaos. I mean, it's like, you know, a beach ball hitting mom upside the head. There's paint on the walls. Kids are marking everywhere. And then all of a sudden the screen shifts over and it shows this chaotic family. And right next to it is the mother of the the kids. It's her sister sitting on a couch with a cup of coffee, really calm and cool and collected. said, I chose this cell phone plan because I don't need a family. Do you you hear the false teaching? It 
but yet it's subtle. Every one of us go, oh, my word, I would love to have that moment of solitude. How can I get that cell phone plan? What does it tell you? Well, get rid of your kids. <laughs> right? It tells you not to have a family. Do you, do you see the angle of what your culture is doing? It's teaching you all the time. And it comes in, false teaching comes in so many different ways. But notice how subtle it is. It is as deceitful as the devil himself. <clears throat> and you can feel the anxiety in false teaching. You never arrive. You feel like you're never good enough. You feel like you'll never do anything to make God happy. And you're always cowering, feeling like there's something more I need to do. Now, how different that is from the simple gospel. And again, I hope you see the difference. Friends, listen, it is internally important that you see the difference. The simple gospel is about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension for us. It's about his work, not our work. It's simple. But the complex false gospels are all about our life, our works, our sacrifices, our duties, our disciplines above or instead of what Jesus has done for us. And the effect of this simple gospel on our behavior is radically different. That's our last point today, which is the freedom that truth brings. I want you to notice this at the end of verse 3 and end of verse 5. Notice false teaching says don't marry, don't eat certain foods. But notice those things are to be received by, notice what he says, those who believe and know the truth. Because God has created marriage and food, and they're to be received with thanksgiving. Again, notice the simplicity of Paul's words here. Marriage and food are things God has given as good, and God has said that they are good. And if God said they're good, they're good. And if you receive them with thanksgiving, you don't need to reject anything that's a gift from God. God's word has said and declared and through prayer as you offer your heart to God to say thank you for this, set them apart in your heart. Meaning, rather than being idols to be worshipped or, listen, a tool to be used in your acceptance before God, they're now gifts to be enjoyed. So you understand what the simple gospel, believing in the simple gospel does to your behavior? It frees you to live life more fully than anyone else on earth does. And the reason it does this is because when we're made right with God through our belief in Christ, and we start, we begin to start seeing that all that we have, food, drink, marriage, singleness, money, possessions, you name the gift, they're all gifts from God, and God made them for His glory and for our enjoyment. And what that does to you, it frees you to enjoy things more. It frees us because we're freed from the anxiety of performance. No longer is food this battleground. Like, should I eat this? Will God be happy with me? Should I? No, the answer is you pray, you thank God, and you eat. And you eat like a Christian with great joy. No longer should you look at that game and go, I don't know if I should watch this game or not. You say, God, thank you for this game. I want to enjoy it. And you go, watch the game, and you celebrate. That, that's what this means. You enjoy The Christian life is not about what we eat, drink, or if we get married or not. It is about Christ and Him crucified 
and how he alone makes us right with God by his performance. John Calvin put it best when he wrote this. When unbelievers eat and drink, God does not allow them the same enjoyment, for they're not numbered among his children. So, when for his sake God adopts us as his children, we may use all of his creatures and his creation with a clear conscience, since they belong to Jesus Christ our head and to all who are members of his body. Being now grafted into him by faith, we may lawfully eat and drink because we have faith first of all. See, do do you see the freedom of this truth as compared to forbid marriage and abstain from certain foods? See, this means you can have a worship experience before you eat cheesecake. It really can. And during eating cheesecake, you can. That's what it means. It means you you can celebrate Christ by thanking Christ and then putting P.F. Chang's lettuce wraps in your mouth and worshiping Christ for that gift. It means you can go to an art gallery and you can, before you walk in the door, you can say, God, thank you for these artists. Thank you for what they've done. Help me to enjoy what you've designed here. And you walk in with eyes wide open, thanking God for what he's done. And then going, that piece of art's weird, but God, thank you for making that guy a person that way. That's off. It's seeing God on top of everything. See? It's one reason why, if you follow Ricky Oliver, he's a dear brother in our church. He's a member of our church. Ricky loves to go to waterfalls. He takes pictures of waterfalls, and then underneath those, he posts some verse that he's thinking about as he's at this waterfall. It's a, it's a worship experience to read his Instagram page. I mean, it's really an amazing thing. Rick, Ricky's getting it. He gets it. It's that perspective. See, it's, it's that understanding that we can marvel at God when you eat garlic parmesan buffalo wings. I mean, they are a gift. They're a gift. You should try them. They really are a gift. It means you can, you can be amazed at the power of God when a guy hits a 545 foot home run. That's a long way. That's a powerful man that God made. God made that guy. And you can marvel. It means you can be amazed at a motor race going, Somebody engineered this engine and made that driver go that fast and his name is God. Wow, God, what a God we serve. See, do you see the freedom this does for you? Now perhaps G.K. Chesterton in his, in his typical satirical way helped us understand how this life is demonstrated. You say grace before meals? All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera. And grace before the concert and the pantomime. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, and dancing. And grace before I dip the pen in the ink. See, do you see how the gospel is to shape your behavior? That's why I hope we saw the big idea today. God has given us the truth of the gospel that shapes our belief, beliefs and our behavior. It is the truth once for all delivered to the saints. This simple truth of the gospel is to capture our hearts and it sets us free to fully live life. This truth protects our hearts 
from a world catechizing us and teaching us to rely on something other than Christ. Listen, parents, I, I, I know many of you, you're trying to isolate your children from the world. And I just want to warn you, you can't. But one thing you can do is you can, you can inoculate their hearts with the gospel. You can help them see there is nobody in the world, in the universe, that loves them more than God ever will because of Christ. And nobody has forgiven them more than anybody's ever will because of Christ. God will. You can elevate this simple gospel in their hearts so that when this world is speaking to them, their hearts are just settled in Christ. So may this gospel, listen, may this gospel guard our hearts from being led astray from a simple and pure devotion to Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we need a word like this in this time. There are so many voices speaking to us through a variety of ways. There is a teaching moment in a text message or a meme or, or a sitcom or a commercial. And your people, we need to be satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone and marvel at the truth found in the gospel and be so overwhelmed with the goodness of God to us that we are not even affected by what our culture speaks to us. But in order to do that, we we need you to open our eyes to the beauty of Christ. Make him more glorious in our eyes than anything this lying world would speak to us. I pray for my brother and sister in Christ who are struggling with forms of legalism that they they feel like they never match up, they never line up, they're never good enough. I pray you would free them from the good enough syndrome because that they would believe and trust with all their heart that only Christ is good enough. I pray for my friend who thinks that lawlessness is the way to find satisfaction and joy in this life that they would see that only Christ, only Christ can bring true life. Only Christ can bring eternal satisfaction. Turn our gaze to Christ, to the wonder of the gospel. Protect your people. Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, protect your people. Care for them. And guard us from false teaching that would lead us to point our attention to our performance rather than Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.